Well, we're calling you out of the August heat and into this air-conditioned, beautiful sanctuary. We're in a five-week series in August. Each week, we're looking at um, what the church is about. We're calling it the church on point and on purpose. And I'm being redundant. I'm being purposefully redundant each and every week. We're reminding you that we're asking you the question, have you ever been involved in an organization that it grew sour, the experience grew sour over time because there didn't seem to be any overarching sense of mission, motivation, or purpose beyond its own self-preservation. That ought not to be the case for the church. We have said, as we've looked at select New Testament passages, that we ought to be like a hedgehog, to borrow the phrase from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. We ought to do uh, a few things really well and be known for a lot that we don't do. And what we're talking about as a church is we ought to be growing disciples. And what kind of disciples? Disciples or followers of Jesus, those who learn from him. But what does that look like specifically? We've looked at the truth of the New Testament, that Jesus is impressed by people who grow their faith. Uh, their faith grows. We, we looked at this passage in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Now, all of Paul's letters in the New Testament start off with grace and peace. Hey, what's up? Good to see you. You guys are doing good, but not in Galatians. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What kind of gospel are you buying into? Who has bewitched you, Paul asked, long before uh, Samantha and Darren, Darren and Tabitha, that show Bewitched came along. Paul is like, who has bewitched you? You're believing something that's not even true. Somebody's you know, moved their nose a little bit and they fooled you. Oh, foolish Galatians, you've fallen back into religious stuff. But look, Christ has come and Christ has ushered in something entirely new. He didn't abolish the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill it. And all that religious stuff, it doesn't matter. Circumcision, uncircumcision, that doesn't matter. Galatians 5, 6, you remember this? Only one thing counts. What? Faith as it's expressed in love. In week one, the first Sunday in August, we talked about faith and what that looks like. And the second week, we talked about love. Remember, Paul said the goal of our instruction, it's not just knowledge because what does he say in 1 Corinthians? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What if we were the type of faith community that we would build each other up? We would build others up uh, when they participated, when they got to know us, when they were around us. There's a draw, an attractiveness if you live to build other people up. The goal of our instruction, he says, is what? It's love. Love in a, in a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we talked about our love being sincere. So that's the mission of our church, what we're hoping that God will do in us, that we'll grow disciples, disciples that, whose faith grows, and that faith is expressed in love. That's the mission. That's what we're after. But we've been talking now in these weeks, or are talking in these weeks, about our three values. Last week, we talked about gospel enjoyment. And this week, we want to talk about intentional community intentional community. There's a couple of studies that are really quite famous research projects in social science in our country. One is known as the Alameda County Study. It was conducted by a team of Harvard social scientists. And they, uh, they studied the lives of over 7,000 people over a stretch of 19 years. And they discovered that people who are relationally isolated they're three times likely to die early than those who have human contact and rich emotional involvement with other people. They, they discovered that those people who have very bad health habits, um, smoking, uh, improper eating habits, 
alcohol, obesity, and such. They have bad health habits, but they have good relationships. They live longer than those who have bad health habits, but good relationships. Did I say that right? Let me flip that. Yeah, those who, those who have, uh, let's put it this way. It's better to eat Twinkies with friends than broccoli alone. All those Harvard social scientists, just get out of my face. I went to Mississippi State. Another study did, conducted the whole the comparison of those who are deeply connected, who have strong human attachments, and those who don't. And they took 274 volunteers, emphasize that word volunteers, they infected them with a virus that causes the common cold. And they discovered that those who have good relationships, strong attachments to other people, are four times more likely to not catch the cold and for it to develop into something stronger. Those who uh, who have strong relationships produce, you ready for this? They produce less mucus than those who live in isolation. I've known it for a long time now. Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. <laughs> Isn't that true? Years ago, when my oldest was sitting or standing out back with his father out by a grill, that hadn't happened much in our lifetime. And there were some charcoals on the grill. And I was uh, talking to him about just the reality of these charcoal briskets and how when they're in isolation, they're no good, but you put them together and they retain energy and produce fire and warmth and they glow in a way that they cannot glow when they are isolated. There's just something about the molecular structure of of charcoal that it's this way. And what a picture. What a picture for you and I when we collectively come together when we gather we can retain energy we can produce warmth there's a glow about us if we're together but isolated like a lone charcoal we're not good for anybody for anything we don't produce anything of value we don't bless anybody do you know interesting to think about this Let me tell you something Jesus never said we're telling you a lot that Jesus did say but let me tell you something that Jesus never said he never said Thou shalt go to church. That'd be good for me if he did, right? It'd even be better job security. But he never said, thou shalt go to church. But here's what he, here's what he did. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And he went up, Jesus, on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, listen, they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. Jesus never directly said, never explicitly said, thou shalt go to church. But what did he do? He created a new community. And the plan for Jesus in changing the world was a be with plan. Be with me. Be with each other. And later call other people to be in community, intentional community with you. And you'll change the world. These men with Jesus They ate together, they laughed together, learned together, prayed together, they served together, they grew angry together, they got jealous together, they faced fear, they fought, they competed with one another, they celebrated together, they washed each other's feet, and they watched each other grow. And as a matter of historical record, I tell you today, church, that no group, no no small group has ever changed the world like that. Never before and never since. That they might be with him. They might create a community like no other community. The byproduct of following Jesus. 
I'm a fairly relational guy. My wife can tell you. She can furrow her brow, roll her eyebrows, and smirk a little bit. But I'm a, God has just made me as a raging expert. Have you noticed that? I love, I love people. I have extreme forms of ADD. I've got to be shot with a, a sedation gun just to calm me down, to, to think and study at times. But I just, I love, I love people. And I've loved social science and studying relationships. And one of my favorite writers is a guy named Scott Peck, who was um, an unbeliever. He wasn't a Christian for many, many years, but he's been known in, in many, many circles to be one of the foremost relationship experts. Not one of those guys that goes on Oprah and talks, but just a really uh, somebody in the academia. And Scott Beck became a Christian, which uh, makes me uh, look at his work with, with just in such a profound way. And he talked about this idea of drawing a contrast between real community and what he calls pseudo community. Now, I understand we got some young guys on the front row in other places uh, now that we've bumped forward as a church. And so they're, they're taking notes, some of these young guys and gals. Pseudo is spelled P-S-E-U-D-O, draw a dash, community. Pseudo community. I'll pay you money if you get it right, Wesley. Pseudo community. There's real community. You can spell that. You got that. And there's pseudo community, according to author, expert, Scott Peck. Real community is what? It's when people show up, they get real, they speak the truth. Relationships that are never static, always dynamic, and they're life-changing. Sometimes it hurts, but it always helps. And when people show up and get real and speak the truth with Jesus at the center and a Holy Spirit to indwell and to guide and to bring comforts, lives can change. Disciples, they can be made. Real community, honestly, guys, it's the ache of every heart. The ache of every heart in here. Young or old, rich or poor, no matter. We all ache for what is genuine, don't we? Scott Peck says, drawing contrast to real community, he says there's pseudo-community. And pseudo-community is synthetic. It's an imitation. It's a fake version of the real. Let me tell you about pseudo-community. Don't act like we don't know, right? Pseudo-community is when it's all about being polite, when it's about being pleasant. The, the, the maxim for pseudo-community, the prevailing ethic is conflict avoidance. Never really getting real. Some of us, this is what we know. I think everybody knows it in some sphere, some arena of life, whether it's marriage or family or work or team or group. There's just an inability to get real. When there's tension or difficulty, when something really needs to be addressed, we smooth it over. Some of us are really good at that. Smooth it over or just sweep it under the rug. It's a version, it's synthetic, it's an imitation, it's a fake version of something that's real. It's called pseudo-community. In the time that we have this morning from select, uh, the select narratives of the gospel, I wanna give you four principles of a Jesus-centered community. If we're gonna walk into intentional community, let's learn from Jesus. The first thing I wanna submit to you this morning is Jesus calls us into an initiating community an initiating community. Look at this passage from the Gospels. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, this is from Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at 18 and 20. The next up we'll put 21, 22. 
While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw two bros, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his bro. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4, 18 to 20. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, 22. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, I love that passage, right? If you're not a Bible scholar, it's like, James, who's James? Oh, he's the son of Zebedee. Oh, I got it. And John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, everybody knows Zebedee. He's their father. He's mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, in ancient literature, if something is repeated as this is, there's some redundancy there, and it's, it's there for a reason. It's to show us something really important. That's true in the Bible. Verily, verily, Jesus will say, truly, truly. Uh, there's repetition there. There's repetition in this story as he's calling people. Essentially, the same things are said, and he wants us to see something here. Uh, somebody once said, somewhat humorously, that some of us have as, as much initiative as an echo. Initiation is really important. Now, let me give you a little bit of historical context because I think you'll appreciate Christ even more. Jesus initiated. Jesus was um, the Messiah. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And a teacher had students. They had learners. He taught, Matthew 7 says, as one who had authority. He didn't speak like the scribes or Pharisees because he didn't just teach so that people would learn something. He taught so that people would do something about what they've heard. It was authoritative and it was very different. But in the culture, he was a rabbi. But he was different than other rabbis. You see, rabbis did not in the those days, they didn't walk the streets and troll for students. This morning, I was out for a little prayer walk. Actually, I was checking on our, sprinkler, checking on our sprinklers out front, and I noticed an old man walking an old dog. And I remember thinking, man, who's going who's gonna to make it longer? They're both just kind of old here. But it was really a sweet sight. And then I realized this guy's somebody special. This guy's a former governor. And I thought, man, I wonder if he knows that I recognize him. And I thought as I was adjusting his sprinkler head, I wonder if he recognizes me. He goes to that church across the street. Maybe he recognizes me. Maybe he recognizes me as that neighbor that drives too fast. But uh, I just thought I had a little moment there. A former governor, a famous guy who knew presidents, who enacted legislation, who made rules, and who was important. He was walking the streets. He was accessible. We find that in this first century Palestinian Jewish rabbi and Messiah. But not only was he accept, uh, accessible to the people, he actually initiated with them. Isn't it kind of a rule of thumb that the more important you are, the less you initiate? Right? I mean, who's more likely to notice me or, or, or speak first? Me or a former governor, huh? We, there's just something, certainly back then, that just seems to be beyond the dignity of the rabbi that he would initiate. L let me put it in simple terms. When you initiate, you ask. When you ask, you are seeking. And when you initiate, seek, and ask, you are facing rejection. Have you thought about that? How many of you, men or women, you've, in the past... You've asked somebody out. You, you took the initiative. I, I stood here last night and quoted from Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. I'm, I'm so glad that all those years ago, I'm able to say that now because I took the initiative, but I, I, I faced rejection. Not really. I had her in the bag. It was obvious. But anyway, 
Have you, let, let's do a show of hands. Just raise your hands if, if sometime in the past uh, you've been rejected by somebody. You've asked them out. Now look around, look up in the balcony especially. This, what you're seeing here is pseudo-community, okay? Pseudo-community because you aren't being real. A lot of you are just lying. You've been rejected. You've, you've been there. I love that old Garth Brooks song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Remember that? He goes to his old high school football game and that he used to pray that she would be his and thank God he sees her now. He's like, whoo, thank God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> I did that a few years ago at old high school football game. And what was really tragic is I looked at a few other girls and they were looking at me and I could read their lips. Thank God for unanswered, <laughs> for unanswered prayers. That one hurts. Hey, church, initiation, taking the initiative is risky. But I bet you nobody in the room has anything or anyone worthwhile if you didn't take a risk, if you didn't step up to the plate and swing big. Incidentally, let me say to our single fellows in the house, ask these girls out. Be good for you and good for them. If you're scared, go in groups. <laughs> if you're really scared, I'll come with you. <laughs> There's somebody over here. They met at our church. They actually met at our house. How cool is that on a singles thing? Anyway, take the initiative. Let's be an initiative community. Let's not be like an echo. Let's take the initiative. If you ask people, this is true of you in the room, you're not exempt. If you ask people why they're involved in something that means a lot to them, you know what the number one answer is? Survey says, somebody asked me. If you ask someone why they're not involved, guess what the number one answer is? Nobody asked me. Nobody asked me. And in Jesus, the one who wants to build community, whose mission, whose mandate to change the world and seeking and saving those who are lost. He has a plan, and it's a simple plan. It doesn't have a lot of bloated bureaucracy. It doesn't have a lot of religious institutionalism. It doesn't have a lot of policies and procedures and protocol and rules and regulation and religious heritage and political stuff. No, no, no. It just has a real simple plan. Be with me. Let's share life together. Let's initiate. One pastor over in Atlanta builds the church on this idea, invest and invite people. Invest your life in theirs and invite them to be a part. Jesus initiated and to initiate, he ran a risk. Are you willing to run a risk to be in community? We're saying it in August. If you're, in, if you're not in community, get in. If you're in community, grow deeper. And if you're already growing deep in community, look outward to see who else you can invest in and invite. And it doesn't just mean inviting them here. It means investing in their lives for eternity. First, Jesus established and desired an initiating community. Secondly, a challenging community. Look at this passage, a challenging community. Look at this passage in Mark chapter 9. They, they being the disciples, came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he, Jesus, asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they had kept quiet. By the way, Jesus knows this is a wonderful teaching moment. When people are arguing something, something's going on. Teachable moment. I hate to see my kids argue, but it's a teachable moment. The kids hate to see their parents argue, but it's a, te just kidding, it's a teachable moment. We have discussions around our house. Anyway, 
what were you arguing about on the road, Jesus asked them. But they, what? They kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Can you keep that up there? Jesus wants to know what's up. And notice the phrase that epitomizes pseudo-community. Can you find it in there? There you go, we cheated. But they, I, I didn't trust you, we put up the notes. But they kept quiet. Why did they keep quiet? You think Jesus was going to let them keep quiet? Teachable moment. That, that's, that's the phrase that epitomizes pseudo-community. Again, something needs to be addressed. Something needs to be talked about. We got a chance to grow deeper. Jesus is always calling people out of pseudo-community into real community, into deeper devotion with God. Not just hearing things that are true, but learning about it. Not just learning about it, but doing it. Think of any area. Think of generosity. You know, Jesus wants us that he set up a kingdom of, a, of the kingdom of God, and it grows not through the kingdom of hoarding, but through the, the kingdom, the practice of investing, of the kingdom of the harvest, of learning what you throw out that you think is yours, that you're clinging to tightly, you throw it out and you're like, whoa, the numbers don't add up. That's fuzzy math. That's not good. God, can I trust you to invest in this local church through tithes and offerings? Can I trust you to go over and beyond that as we're learning to do in offerings and helping people? Can I trust you because I'm throwing it down, but there's this law of the harvest that when you throw it in, something can grow there. And Jesus wants us to learn to live what he says in any area, generosity, prayer, humility. And here it is in humility. You see, Jesus came into a very religious culture where there was a pecking order. From the very beginning, even pre-Genesis, we can, we can learn about a pecking order and we can learn when that pecking order gets ugly and it goes wrong. And in pseudo community, they kept quiet. Why did they keep quiet specifically in this context? They kept quiet because they were arguing. And what were they arguing over? Scripture said it. Who is the greatest? Does that surprise you? Doesn't it disappoint you a little bit? But doesn't it make you feel good in a way to know, like we said last week, you can read that passage and go, me too. Sometimes I get out of whack. Something, sometimes things get off kilter and I'm really living according to my little kingdom. And have you noticed if you get involved in a church or a group or a team or a workplace or a family and you got a bunch of people running around with their little kingdoms, it's just newsflash. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work. One kingdom matters. You know we're called the body of Christ. Most of you know that. We're the body of Christ. Read Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4. We're the body of Christ. Christ is the head. Nobody hears the head. Christ is the head and we are the body and ought to function that way. And sometimes we can argue over our petty little jealous kingdoms of who is the greatest. And Jesus is saying, you missed it. Hey, remember John the Baptist? You guys remember John the Baptist? Okay. Exhibit A, remember that guy? To, you may not want to be just like him because he wore those funny sandals and he ate honey and wild locusts and all. But John the Baptist had it right. He said, what I must decrease so that he might increase. And here there's a teachable moment. Jesus, in fact, some of you don't know this. It's my sanctified imagination. But Jesus was basically saying to the disciples, you can believe um, Will Ferrell as Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights. You can believe that the, if you're not first, you're last. Or you can believe me that those who are last will be first. That's what he goes on to teach there. 
There's a teachable moment. There's a challenging community here, challenging them to grow to deeper devotion. We want to create a church where we can gather in little communities and where it's safe, but yet it's not soft on sin. Paul says to the Roman church, you guys are ready to admonish one another. For us to have a role in each other's lives where we can say, hey, are you, are you straying? Topher prayed it right before the message today at the end of the worship set. He said, we, we stray. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Jesus sees these guys and says, you're straying. You're straying. You're thinking it's about you. You're arguing over who is the greatest. You're drinking from a well that's never going to satisfy. We need a community that's safe. It's safe to speak up, but it's not soft on sin. When we see someone stray, we can lovingly, gently, with reverence, call it out and speak into them and help them. It's a challenging community. I met with a, a, a man this week, kind of an older guy. He's just burnt out, frazzled and frayed and giving up on many ways on God and certainly has given up on the church. He said, I've tried this and I've tried that and tried this and tried that. And, you know, I went to church and they told me to get in a group and then I got in a group. My wife and I got in a group and then they told me to get in a men's group. That's the problem. You're not, you're not, not in a men's group. Get in a men's group. Then they told me to go to this rally called Promise Keepers. So that's the deal. I got to go out of town on a bus to a conference and I got to rally with men and keep my promises. And then I come back and I got to get in a men's group and grow sharper. And we put that verse up, Proverbs 27, uh, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens another. You know that verse, right? That's what we need. We got to grow sharper together. But here's the thing about that, which I think he failed to realize is that's just not cliche. If iron sharpens iron, just picture that in your mind. If iron sharpens iron, can I tell you, sparks are flying. That hurts. Abrasion and friction. Somebody's talking to you. Somebody, somebody sees something about you that you don't see in yourself. Mm. As iron sharpens iron, and it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. That's not, that's not necessarily a feel-good passage, but that's a life-giving passage. Because some of your day, honestly, you're in the ditch. And I would love for you to find a safe place to land here so you can tell people the truth and they can tell you the truth, but that we would not be soft on sin. What does Romans 12 say? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. You know, we can help each other abhor what is evil. Because there's evil in this world. Look at the good gifts that God gives, love and sex and relationships. You think those things are distorted at all in our world? You think our world's not begging for a sense of justice and mercy? For us to call each other out in these areas. Jesus exemplifies and desires an initiating community, a community with initiative and a challenging community. A third thing I want to share with you briefly is a vulnerable community. Jesus modeled to us, don't hide things and don't handle things on your own. That hurts today if you're here and you're hiding something or trying to handle something on your own. Men, I'm talking to you in particular. Because there's something, this is just some science here, something neurologically about a man where we can compartmentalize. And that bravado stuff says, hey, I've got, I got this. I got it. 
And Jesus, I want to say this, he didn't hide things. He didn't have sin, but he had humanity and he had emotion. Do you know that he let his closest friends, he let the people see him at his worst, if you will? And scripture tells us he was hungry. He was angry. He was tired. And he felt rejected. Look at this passage in John. John chapter 6 is a really long verse in the Bible, and it's a story of Jesus preaching. It was not Joel Olstein church growth stuff. He wasn't giving them, there's some hero within you. You can have your best life now. He was, he was basically giving them a talk that he knew was going to scatter them. He was going to find out who was curious and who was committed. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a chapter that just said, mm, you better not preach that stuff because that's hard. Those are difficult sayings. And Jesus, as he taught, I love this, because I learned a long time ago, if you're preaching the Bible, you've got you to gotta thicken this skin up. And Jesus says to his disciples, do you hear, look at this humanity. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. You see, people are leaving. You with me? You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus let them see him. When he was sorrowful, he let them see him. Do you know how this verse finishes up? Who do you think spoke up of the 12 disciples? Who spoke up? You know? You're so scared you're going to be wrong and shamed in church. I'm going to call you by name. Who spoke up? He always was speaking up. Peter. Who can relate to Peter? I'm that guy. And Peter spoke up and he said, hey, where else do we have to go? I'm not going to leave you, Jesus. And we see here Jesus modeling for us, establishing and desiring for us a community where we too cannot hide and not handle things on our own, but we can just put it out there and let people know and lower the drawbridge. Honestly, I'd follow a leader like that anywhere. The lofty perch, the have it all together, the one who's banished all doubt and fear and worry, who has 10 secrets to success, mm, not so much. Life has a way, doesn't it? of just totally puncturing that. Are you going to leave me too? Jesus went on to pray this, not, not far from then in the garden. He said this phrase, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. How much time do you spend trying to make people think highly of you? And can I tell you that it so often doesn't work it backfires, and it leaves you isolated. If that's your human construction of your life, to make people think more highly of me via social media, via first impressions, via putting my best foot forward, via not telling people and disclosing my own struggles, then that's going to lead you, I guarantee you, it'll lead you to isolation. The very thing you want is the very thing that you will not get without that vulnerability. 
Jesus establishes and desires an initiating community, a challenging community, a vulnerable community, and lastly, I want to say, a continuing community. A continuing community. In John chapter 8, Jesus talks about who true disciples are. John 8, 31. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. He desires that we continue on. Years ago, we were vacationing with some friends in northern Virginia. We were in that old Alexandria, Virginia town at a hotel, and we noticed there was there was some movement, quite a bit of movement, something it seemed magical was happening. We thought there was a big celebrity or something in the ballroom just adjacent to where we were uh, uh, sitting and having coffee or something with some friends. And we learned a few moments after that that there was a gathering, uh, a reunion gathering, high school team reunion gathering of the, the guys who years ago were boys on a high school football team. It was the, the real life Remember the Titans guys. And you, most of you uh, know this story. You saw this movie. Uh, a high school football coach, Herman Boone, played by Hollywood's Denzel Washington. He takes a group of deeply divided high school football players. And he, over time, gels them into a championship team. And it begins, the story begins on the gridiron of these, these high school players in that August heat. And in in just the intensity of it, the two-a-day drills. And Coach Herman Boone in the movie with Denzel Washington, he yells out, who are you? And these players, they yell out, we are mobile, agile, hostile. What is pain, he asks them. And they yell back, French bread. What is fatigue? They yell back, army clothes. And he goes, do you want to quit? And they yell back. They bellow out as a team. No, give me more. No, give me more. No, give me more. The white guys in Northern Virginia in the 70s were learning rhythm, I think, at that time. <laughs> no, give me more. And Jesus knows. He says, I'm calling you out. I'm, call, I'm, I'm inviting you to come be with me, and I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. This will be two-a-days in August. It will be hot. It will be hard. But I want you to continue on. Will you quit? A friend of mine, pastor, called me this week. He knew I was discouraged about something. Evidently, he thought I was more discouraged than I was, which is fine with me. And he just said, bro, don't quit. Don't quit. It's like, well, wasn't planning on it. But honestly, he told me sometimes he does. I'm like, dude, you're like mega church, dude. He's like, sometimes don't you, you just want to quit? I mean, isn't it true of everybody? You just, you just want to quit. And it's why I love this book of Hebrews, similar to Galatians in some respects, but there's a two-word phrase, let us. It's just peppered throughout Galatians. It says, let us encourage one another daily. Let us enter into his rest. Let us draw near in confidence. Let us draw near with hearts in full assurance. Let us move from milk to meat. Let us move away from elementary things into real maturity in Christ. Let us, because there's a great cloud of witnesses around us, let us run the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves as some are. Let us provoke one another to love and good deeds. Let us 
hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Do you want some more? True disciples plant deep roots. And no matter what's going on, they don't quit. They hold fast. But you and I will not hold fast if we're the little charcoal brisket removed and off to the side. But together, together we can be a community and we can move. We can just take tiny steps. That's what we're asking. Take a step. Your step may be different than my step. But take a step out of pseudo-community and into real community. And what if it was a Jesus community? What if it was an initiating community, a challenging community, a vulnerable community, and a continuing community that we went on and on and on, and we were faithful. We were faithful. We walked in intentional community. My prayer for this church is this. And let, me, let me say this so some of you can relax. It's cool with me that some of you just kind of pop in from time to time. Do you know I'm so glad? I'm trying not to look at you right now. <laughs> All right? But you've been away for the summer. You've been on the golf course. And I know football's about to start. And you're just kind of popping in. All right? I'm so thrilled. And we want to be a place that's safe, that's so safe. For some of you, you want to come a little bit late. You want to leave a little bit early. You want to sit in the back. Nobody's judging. You notice that? We have ushers to help some people get a seat, but we don't like grab you by the arm and force you to sign up for anything. But at the same time, I don't want this place to be an event. I want it to be a community. And what type of community? Different than the country club. A Jesus community. Where we're intentional about it. In closing, I want to say we've hired a guy we brought him up here a couple of weeks ago. He'll close our service in a minute, but he's a super talented guy. He's won awards academically and athletically. He's a, he's a dude from the Delta, God-fearing parents from the Delta. Isn't that great? Just a super guy. And he left the, his law practice. He left being a lawyer to be a minister. That's going to balance out in heaven, uh, just kind of equal weight, no reward, just kind of. But we've hired him for the first time ever in our church, we have somebody full-time that will lead us, our elders, our staff team, our, all of you, into community. Some of you came to the gym Wednesday night. Some of you have a social phobia, and you came to the gym on Wednesday night. I'm looking at you, and I'm kind of laughing because I know it's hard for you, right? It's hard for you to take a step into community. But praise God that we've got people investing and inviting and creating a place. And let me say this. Uh, Fondren is a young church. Look around. It, it's a very young church. That child is really young. Uh, <laughs> but it's a young church. And I want to say this. Nick's going to help us with a lot of things. And one of the things we're going to ask Nick to do is gather a party. And we're going to call it Fondren Over 50. And you know who you are. <laughs> and I don't know what Nick's going to have for you, but we're going to just have a fellowship. Y'all like that word fellowship. We're going to have a fellowship You'll probably do something, maybe bowling, bingo, um, <laughs> shorts, black socks, shuffleboard. Something's going to happen, and we're going to intentionally call you into community. And here's what we're going to say. We're going to say, what, what do we need to do to keep you here? 
What can we do? What can Fondren Church do to be friendly to people over 50? Because you know what? We need you. And maybe the answer is folks over 50 just circle up and have groups together. But maybe not. Because I stood out here with a friend. I just pointed at him right before Fondren Church came from Dueling Hall to this building, before we laid siege here. And he stood right there and he goes, man, I love Fondren Church. I almost got emotional. Let me tell you how much this church has meant to me. Boom, 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 boom. And he goes, but, and pastors are always scared of the but. And he's like, but, he said, we're just so young. I wish we had some more gray hairs. And can I say that if you're shopping around or not sure and you're over 50, we could really use you here at Fondren Church. We're young, but young people need older people. How many of you are young? How many of you are old? (laughs) If you don't know, you're old. (laughs) And I can see 50 fast approaching. Let's pray.